I'd like to invite you now to please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Our New Testament reading is going to be Romans 8, 35 to 39. And our sermon text will be Joshua chapter 10. Romans 8, 35 to 39. Let's pray and ask God's blessing on his word. Our Father in heaven, we ask now that you would open our eyes so that we might behold the wonderful things in your word. We ask that you would, um, uh, through the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, uh, use this time of reading and preaching the scriptures to build up your people and to draw us closer to Christ and make us more like him. And we ask all these things in his name. Amen. All right, Romans 8, verses 35 to 39. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now let's turn to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua 10. As soon as Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonizedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmuth, to Yaphia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. 
And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel, and he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Yashar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it, before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Makeda. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. And Joshua said, Roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them, but do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies, attack their rear guard, do not let them enter their cities, for the Lord your God has given them into your hand. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Makeda. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. Then Joshua said, Open the mouth of the cave and bring those five kings out to me from the cave. And they did so and brought those five kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Yarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua struck them and put them to death. And he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down to the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves, and they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. As for Makeda, Joshua captured it on that day and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword. He devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, and he did to the king of Makeda just as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makeda to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done to Libna. Then Horam king of Gezer came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron, 
And they fought with against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. And he left none remaining. Just as he had done to Hebron and to Libnah and its king, so he did to Debir and to its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negev and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Amen. And you can be seated. We have just uh, passed April Fool's Day, so... Um, this uh, is too late for this year, but if you are looking for something to do next year on April 1st, I've got one for you. What you need to do <coughs> is go to a, a very tall building somewhere and get on a crowded elevator and with as straight a face as possible, say very calmly, I'm sure you're all wondering why I've gathered you here today. There's a point to this. This chapter begins with five kings gathering together for battle. But you have to wonder in the big picture, who was it really who was gathering these kings? Was it Adonizedek, the king of Jerusalem? Well, yes, he was the one who sent the messengers out and mustered the troops, said, come on, let's go fight against Gibeon. But there is a greater king than Adonizedek at work here, even from the very beginning of the chapter. And I would argue that it's really the Lord who has gathered these kings together for this day, gathered them so that he can defeat them all at once in one place and display his glory by fighting for Israel. Last time I mentioned uh, two psalms describing two contrasting reactions to the sovereign power of God. One of them being Psalm 66, where it says, So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. That's what describes well what the Gibeonites did in chapter 9. But then, in contrast, there's Psalm 2. We looked at where it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord? And that is what we see this Canaanite coalition exemplifying here in chapter 10. So let's follow the three big sections of this chapter tonight under three big headings. The first one is going to be supernatural success and a sovereign savior. It's verses 1 to 15. The second one is a clash of kings and a call to courage. Verses 16 to 28. And then number three, a long list about the Lord's land, verses 29 to 43. Let me give you those again. Supernatural success and a sovereign savior, 
a clash of kings and a call to courage, and then a long list about the Lord's land. All right. Back in chapter 9, Israel, you remember, was tricked into making a covenant with Gibeon. And they were tricked, they fell for it, because they did not ask counsel from the Lord, right? But of course, once that covenant was in place, the leaders of Israel were committed to keeping that covenant, not going back on their word because they had sworn in the name of the Lord, of Yahweh. And now in in chapter 9, last time, what that meant primarily was, well, non-aggression. We're not going to go attack Gibeon. We're not going to wipe them out like we are the other cities. But um, if you think about what a covenant really means, a covenant means a lot more than that. In this culture, in this cultural context, if a great king made a covenant with a lesser king, the, the lesser king was responsible to serve and to give tribute to the greater king. But the great king had responsibilities too. The great king was responsible to defend the lesser kings under his authority. A a covenant meant you will serve me and I will defend you. Verse 6, people of Gibeon appeal to that covenant relationship. Um, And of course, the history of this chapter is that those five kings under Adonisetic assemble initially for war, not against Israel. They assemble for war against Gibeon. They're they're wanting to punish this fellow Canaanite city for aligning with the invaders. But because Gibeon is in covenant with Israel, that becomes Israel's fight too. Gibeon says, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. Last week, we saw the uh, interesting irony in <clears throat> the way um, chapter 20, uh, sorry, verse 23 of chapter 9 says that Gibeon was cursed to become servants of Israel. But then verse 26 goes on to say Joshua delivered them. They were cursed, and yet they were also delivered through that uh, whole episode. Well, here it's even more vivid in what they, this appeal they make to Israel. Remember that Joshua's name is very closely related to the Hebrew word for salvation. And um, it's that Hebrew word for salvation, that, um, which sounds like Joshua's name, that Gibeon uses here in verse 6 when they say, save us. Come up to us quickly and save us. Joshua us is how it sounds in Hebrew. As we read this whole story, chapters 9 and 10 together, you might think, you might expect, well, here come the bad consequences for Israel's failure to seek the Lord and for making this covenant that they should never have made with a Canaanite city. But it's interesting that that's actually not what happens. In fact, in verse 8, you find that the the real... um, Savior in this chapter is ultimately going to be not the servant Savior, Joshua, but the sovereign Savior, the Lord himself. Uh, Do not fear them, the Lord says, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them 
shall stand before you. So the Lord is assuring Joshua right from the very beginning that he is going to give Israel the victory as they come to the aid of Gibeon in this face-off against the Canaanite alliance. The rest of this section, of this first section, then highlights what we should really describe as the supernatural success of Israel in this campaign. It is the Lord who throws the kings into a panic, verse 10. It is the Lord who throws down the great stones from heaven upon them, verse 11. Seem to be hailstones as it goes on. And it's also the Lord who sovereignly and supernaturally changes the behavior even of the sun and the moon as he bends the entire creation, the heavens and the earth, to the aid of his people and to the destruction of his enemies. That brings us, of course, to the most striking part of this chapter, verses 12 to 14. It's interesting. uh, There's actually a lot of debate, even among uh, Bible-believing commentators, about about what this section actually means, what what we're supposed to see is is actually taking place at this moment. Uh, Some of the commentators, again, this is not a perspective of unbelief. These are people just trying to do exegesis, figure out what is it saying. Some people want to take that word for stand still as actually referring to a darkening of the sun rather than it standing still in the sky, uh, which is the historic, more traditional view. Uh, Some people suggest that uh, Joshua was asking for some kind of heavenly sign that would terrify the Canaanite enemies, confuse them. And um, I don't necessarily have a problem with any of those kinds of suggestions, as long as they're based on exegesis, as long as they're really trying to understand the meaning through careful interpretation, uh, as opposed to just trying to get out of having to say that the sun actually stood still in the sky, which is what it seems to, what um, the historic interpretation uh, suggests that it seems to be saying here. Because, of course, that is a, a pretty stupendous claim to make, that the sun would stand still in the heavens. And it's the sort of claim that uh, has often provided a, a field day for, for skeptics who love to talk about, how, oh, do you not know all of the horrible things that would happen to the earth if, the, if it really stopped spinning on its axis and so on? And Of course, those are very shallow critiques, as we'll get into in a minute, as we think about what it means to... to embrace a supernatural perspective on reality instead of a merely naturalistic one. Um, In response to those very shallow, skeptical critiques, unfortunately, there are some equally shallow evangelical responses. And just to get this out there, if you've ever heard the story about NASA computers finding a missing day somewhere, um, I hate to say it, but Christians have got to stop using that story to defend the Bible because it's, it's an urban legend. So just don't use that for apologetics because it doesn't do us any favors. It actually hurts our cause when we keep repeating fake evidence to defend the Bible. Now, all that said about the possible interpretations and so on, I'm convinced that the older understanding, the historic understanding that's reflected in all of the English translations I looked at is the best one, that the historian is really telling us that the sun appeared to, to stand still in the sky that the day was really extended, Uh, the purpose being so that Israel could have more time, they could have more daylight 
to follow up their victory, to chase down more Canaanites so that it would be a complete victory rather than a partial one. I have some understanding for the other views and where they're coming from. I just don't, I just don't see it. I don't think it's the best explanation. But I also don't think that this particular miracle is really all that much harder to believe than many other miracles in the Bible if, at the outset, we admit the possibility of miracles at all. People want to treat this as some kind of special case because of the cosmic scale. Um, And because now we're modern people, although if you really think about it, the... In modern times, the perspective we've gotten on the huge scale of the universe and how relatively tiny the earth is. Think, just think, if we serve the Lord who created the vast expanses of the universe, how small a thing do you think it would be for him to make just a little tiny adjustment on this little speck in the corner of the Milky Way galaxy? What's the whole idea behind miracles? Any miracle is the supernatural action of the sovereign creator. And yes, some miracles are bigger than others. This one is certainly one of the bigger ones, but it's by no means the biggest one in the Bible. The biggest miracle in the Bible is arguably creation in the first place, right? Something from nothing. It's the supernatural sovereign power of God bringing the universe into existence. Surely the God who made it all then has the authority and the power to intervene within that creation, to suspend the ordinary course of things for an extraordinary purpose. And so to accept in principle that the smallest miracle is possible is to accept in principle that the greatest miracle is possible, that great miracles like this one are possible. If supernaturalism is true, then it is true all the way, in other words. And Christianity is supernaturalistic. It is a supernatural religion to its core. If we're going to be supernaturalists, insisting that this world is not all there is, insisting that the God who made the world can act sovereignly within it at will, well, then let's be supernaturalists to the end, all the way. Okay, so setting that apologetics question to one side, which is worth, worth talking about since it's an issue that comes up from time to time. I'd like to reflect now on what I think is really the more important question of how this battle fits into the bigger story of the Bible. This gathering of kings who, who think that they've gathered on their own initiative, uh, but it turns out that it's really the Lord who has gathered them so that the Lord might defeat them all at once. Um, This is actually a pattern that we see appearing in other places in the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Joel chapter 3, the prophecy of Joel. There's this imagery of God's great wine press. This place where you put all of the grapes and then you trample them all out at once. And Joel talks about how there are (coughs) uh, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, so that... God can judge all of these kings who have gathered for battle against him all at once and rescue his people from them at the same time. Interestingly, the reason I bring up Joel is in the very next verse, it says the sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. There are these supernatural heavenly signs that are accompanying this great climactic victory of God over this assembly 
of his foes in one place. Well, fast forward way ahead to Revelation chapter 16. There's the battle of Armageddon and the demonic spirits who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to do what? To assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. This is God's purpose for those kings to be assembled at Armageddon so that God can defeat them all at once. And listen to how John describes that battle at Armageddon. It says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven. So the way God gathers his enemies for judgment on that day echoes the judgment that fell on these five kings that God had gathered on this day. Well, it's the kings themselves that really come into focus in verses 16 to 28, which we're, which we're calling a clash of kings and a call to courage. So in this section, uh, it's important to see that these kings who assembled with all of their combined power to oppose Israel at the beginning have now been defeated. They have been dethroned and utterly subjugated. The whole history of the conquest really is, is, from one perspective, the history of a clash of kings. The many kings of Canaan versus the one great king of Israel. Not Joshua, but the Lord. The Lord is Israel's king. The nations have raged and the peoples have plotted in vain against the Lord, to use that language of Psalm 2. But as that psalm goes on, remember wonderful response. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. So as these kings are drugged from the caves where they've hidden themselves, and the leaders of Israel are told to put their feet upon their necks, that is symbolic. It's not an act of cruelty. It's an act of symbolism. It's a symbol of their total defeat this total victory of Israel. And you can see in what happens to these kings echoes of things that have already happened in Joshua and they're happening again. The same imagery with the same meaning the, the, uh, as these kings are, are buried in the same caves where they had hidden before when it says they set large stones against the mouth of the cave which remain to this very day. Uh, one commentator suggests that the actions of the people with the great stones are imitating uh, the action of God in throwing down the hailstones from heaven. And that may be. Um, also, I, I think that these stones perhaps echo the heaps of stones that were raised first over um, Achan and then over the king of Ai. Uh, stone, stones being heaped over these defeated foes, one after the other. It shows that there's the same pattern, that the Lord is winning one victory after another um, and prevailing over his enemies, and Israel's enemies. And also, like the king of Ai, these five kings, in the same way, are, are hanged until evening, but taken down at sunset in that direct um, obedience to Deuteronomy chapter 21, as we talked about a couple, couple weeks ago. Now, there's a lesson in all of this for the leaders of Israel. This is the call to courage part. Joshua gives them the practical application for them in verse 25. And these words should sound very, very familiar to you by this point. It says, And Joshua said to them, 
Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Joshua is passing on to them what the Lord had said to him back in chapter 1. What the Lord had said to all Israel back in Deuteronomy. The, the, The point of this very ceremonial execution of the kings is to teach something to Israel. To teach them that the Lord is keeping his promises. That the Lord is indeed giving them the land of Canaan just like he said he would do. And that the Lord is going to continue fighting for them in the future just as he has uh, proven to them up to this point. And that really is the, the key to this whole chapter, that idea of the Lord fighting for Israel. Verse 14, the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 25, thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And then finally, verse 42, the end. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. That's the historian's summary of, of, this, of the last section, the third section, which we're calling tonight a long list about the Lord's land. And it is indeed a long list. Uh, and in fact, it is just the beginning of many such long lists that we're going to encounter in the ensuing chapters. Uh, long lists of cities and kings conquered. And then after that, of the, the, the land and the cities divided up among the tribes of Israel. This particular list, just to orient you to how they're different, because they can kind of tend to run together uh, when we don't understand what's going on. This particular list is covering the southern part of Canaan. Uh, the future territory primarily of Judah. Um, And in chapter 11, then, uh, Joshua's going to turn north, and he's going to conquer cities up in the northern part of the Promised Land. Uh, But for now, these cities are all down in the south. They are um, in between, you could say, the Dead Sea on the east and the Mediterranean Sea on the west. And um, as Joshua and all Israel with him, uh, they conquer all these cities there are a few things that are being hammered home through this long list. One of the things is, is the obedience of Joshua and the people. Verse 40 sums up, So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings, uh, etc., etc. And then it says, Just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. They are following the Lord's instructions um, very carefully, carrying out the Lord's plan for the conquest of what is ultimately the Lord's land. Another thing this uh, long list hammers home is the swiftness and the the totalness or totality of the victory that the Lord is giving Israel. Um, The big battle near Gibeon kind of opens the floodgates for Israel to make very rapid progress over the entire southern part of the Promised Land. You see one city after another falling as the Lord makes good on his promise to give this land into Israel's hand. But I think the most important thing that's being hammered home here in this last section, and really what this whole chapter is about, in essence, is that the Lord himself is the main actor. The Lord is the main fighter, the main warrior in this campaign. How was it, we could ask, that that Joshua captured all these kings and their land all at one time? Verse 42, well, it was because the Lord... God of Israel fought for Israel. What Israel needed to know as they went about the conquest was that the Lord wasn't simply up in heaven somewhere giving orders to them down below. Go go here, 
do this, do better, try harder, Israel. Israel needed to know that the Lord was personally active, fighting with them and for them in this war. That it was not ultimately their war, but his war. And that their success was going to depend not just on following his orders, but on trusting his personal presence and power with them as he supernaturally gave to them what they never could have dreamed of just going in and taking for themselves. I wonder how often we think of the Christian life as basically a matter of just following God's orders, imagining the Lord as someone far away, handing down instructions from heaven and then sending us out to to make them happen on our own. See, it's not how the Bible ever describes the life of God's people. It's not how it describes the Christian life. The Lord is God with us. He is the God who fights for us. And what better example of that is there than the Lord Jesus himself, who the Lord who became flesh and dwelt among us, who came to our defense as Joshua, the Savior, came to the defense of the Gibeonites, who very transparently did not deserve Israel's help. They received it on the basis of covenant, but they didn't deserve it. Uh, They didn't deserve the Lord's help. Come up quickly and save us, they said. And see, that's what the Lord did for us in our case by coming down in person. Not sending merely a messenger, but himself taking our own flesh and blood. And in that flesh and blood, fighting for us. The war that we could not fight for ourselves. His war against sin. His war against death and the devil. You've got to understand, it is this divine warrior, it is this same Lord of Joshua, who is the Lord who fights for us. It is this Lord of the battle of Gibeon who caused the sun to stand still that day that Paul is speaking of in Romans 8 when he says, what then shall we say to these things? Because if God is for us, who can stand against us? And when he says that in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us, because I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because our Savior is also the sovereign creator, the sovereign creator who has the supernatural power to rule and to overrule in his creation, to bend it and direct it to the rescue and redemption of his people. If you think it's amazing to the point of maybe stretching credulity that the Lord would move heaven and earth or I guess stop them from moving as he did at the Battle of Gibeon, that is nothing compared with the supernatural shock to creation when the Lord himself stepped into it in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus, when the God-man Jesus himself waged war on the cross against our sin. And then, most of all, when on the third day the Lord Jesus reversed the natural course of things in the most dramatic turn of all history by raising him from the dead in an everlasting triumph. See, Joshua and Israel with him experienced some pretty amazing things, definitely, in this period of their history. 
But I want you to know that in Christ, you and I have experienced something even better. As Paul says, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And as the Lord Jesus now reigns over us as our heavenly sovereign king from heaven, do not forget, as we've been learning from Pentecost in the morning series, that he still is not an absent king, but he is very present with us through the power of the Holy Spirit. The Lord himself is still fighting for his people in person, not as an absentee rule giver, but as a very present help in times of trouble. Very present. And therefore, we will not fear people of God, even though the earth gives way, and even though the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. The Lord has given to us in Christ every reason not to be afraid or dismayed, but to be strong and courageous. For thus, the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the history of the conquest, for the saving actions as you fought for Israel and delivered them. We thank you for recording them for us in your word. And we thank you for the way that they... um, Reveal to us, uh, in yet another way, the glory and sovereignty and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, our King. And we ask that in light of this little slice of the history of your people, that you would um, move our hearts to a greater faith and confidence, dependence on him, to more faithful uh, and diligent obedience as we go out and uh, fight the good fight of faith that you have given to us following Christ our head who fights our battles for us as you fought for Israel. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen.